with the increased interest in ketogenic diets coming on strong over the past year, there's an exciting new company that stands ready to provide keto enthusiasts with a potent product. It's called Keto MCT and was scientifically formulated and supported by a renowned PhD lipid biochemist, nutritionist, and adjunct bull professor with over three decades of experience in the field. His name is Dr. Alvin Berger, and along with his wife, Anna, they are educating their customers on MCTs, providing the most potent MCT oil available on the market. It's made in the USA, and it's backed by solid science to promote sustained energy, better weight management, and incredible brain health benefits. Head on over to KetoMCT.com to learn how KetoMCT can add in more healthy fat to your low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic lifestyle. Enter the coupon code LLVLC at checkout and you'll get 20% off your order plus free shipping. At KetoMCT, their everyday mantra is to have a trusted and interactive relationship with their customers. So try Keto MCT today. Hey guys, Dave Korzynski is back here with us again today from Heads Up Health. Visit their website, headsuphealth.com. And Dave, you've had a lot of great new features added to your health tracking software. And today you've got this thing called a glucose ketone index. Tell us where that came from. So the glucose ketone index comes from work done by Dr. Seafried, who I know you've had on the show. And it allows you to compare the ratio of glucose to ketones in your bloodstream at any given time. And there are ranges that have been identified for different metabolic therapies. So Dr. Seafried and team had a range for cancer treatment where the index actually is three or less. And some of our users who are managing type 2 diabetes or obesity are using a range that's slightly higher than that. And there are ranges for optimal ketosis. So within the software, you can enter your glucose in milligrams per DL or millimoles per liter into your ketones will automatically calculate the index. You can store it, add any notes that you want to keep track of, and then compare it to any other health metrics that you're collecting. And so many of my listeners are tracking their health for a wide variety of purposes. So definitely you guys go check out headsuphealth.com and you can see all of these great features about how you can track your own progress on your ketogenic diet, your fasting, or even some of these therapeutic reasons why you would be testing. So headsuphealth.com. Coming up in episode 1226, Daniel Shuloff. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live and Levita Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of live that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author. You're like the LL Cool J of podcasting. Jimmy Moore. Hey, hey, guys. We're back here on the Live and Levita Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. And today, I am very privileged to welcome to the podcast a gentleman by the name of Daniel Shuloff. And Dan is the founder of Varsity Pets. He's also the author of a book we're going to talk about here today called Dogs, Dog Food, and Dogma, best title I've heard in a long time, by the way, Dan. 
the subtitle, The Silent Epidemic Killing America's Dogs and the New Science That Could Save Your Best Friend's Life. Now, prior to becoming a full-time writer and entrepreneur, he practiced law, served as a clerk to a federal judge, and also edited an academic journal. He now lives in Salt Lake City, Utah with his wife and, of course, two dogs, Cody and Lucy. And he's also an avid ultra-marathoner, rock climber, and ski mountaineer. You can visit his websites, varsitypetsonline.com and theoptimaldog.com. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, thanks for the um, nice introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. And you wrote it, so it was good. <laughs> no, try to, you know, give folks at least um, a little bit of an ins- insight into what, what kind of keeps things ticking around here. Um, I, you know, we're out in Salt Lake City now, but I understand that you're down down in the south. In south south Kakalaki, yep. Yeah, I spent a lot of time down in that neck of the woods myself. I uh, went to law school and practiced law both in Atlanta. Oh, very nice. Yeah, it's three hours from where I live. Yeah, there you go. How cool. Um, yeah. So why don't you back up? Uh, let's back up to your lawyer days because I'm, I'm sure you're trying to forget about those days sometimes. But, but uh, how do you shift from this very successful career as an attorney over to this issue, which seems to be more of kind of a, a, a pet project, all pun intended, um, <laughs> that's not really a moneymaker per se. What was your motivation for kind of shifting away from that? What what got you interested in this subject that you wrote about in your book? Yeah, well, as you might guess, um, at the, the most fundamental motivating cause was I, I got a dog. Um, I, you know, I was living in um, a kind of urban environment where I was working entirely too much and spending entirely too little time with um, other other people in a social situation. And so um, when I brought uh, Cody, my Rottweiler, into my life as an eight-week-old puppy um, uh, in 2009, uh, it, it really made a big impact on my life. Uh, we, you know, as, as anyone who's listening to this who's a pet owner surely already knows that the bond uh, grows quickly and it grows deep. Even and, with cats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And that, That's um, my thing. I'm not really a dog guy. I'd never have been, partly because I got bit by a Doberman when I was a kid and I'm still traumatized by that. So cats and chickens are my pets. So. Yeah, okay. We've always been dog people around here. My wife and myself, uh, when, when we got married, we did the, um, uh, the the Brady Bunch phenomenon and married uh, story. doggy children together. Um, but yeah, we've always been dog people. I was raised around them, but I have lots of friends out here in Salt Lake who are cat people too. Yeah. And so I know uh, that the... Um, that the, the kind of bond I have with my dog translates well across species. You know, you, you, the familiarity that you experience seeing the animal every day and really getting to observe its personhood really um, helps you develop a really uh, deep emotional attachment quickly, of course. Um, so, yeah. so, so, you know, as you could probably, um, the, um, the Rottweiler's reputation uh, precedes it in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in my experience, there are aspects of that reputation that are unfair. Um, that being said, um, Cody's a big dog and, um, he's full of energy, even he's eight years old now and he's, he's still a, um, he's a a dynamo and, um, he requires a good deal of, um, of 
management in order to kind of conform his behavior to the expectations <laughs> of white human society. And so one of the best way, you know, there's, there's probably no truer cliche in uh, the world of dog ownership than the one that tells us that a tired dog is a well-behaved dog. That's right. certainly consistent with my experience. And so. And a, a well-fed dog, too. <laughs> yeah, look, fair enough. <laughs> But I, you know, I stumbled into the diet and obesity issues um, kind of through a back door. I, you know, what I was looking for, I was, I was interested in trying to exercise my dog as effectively, as efficiently as possible. I was working a really demanding job, and I, you know, I didn't have a glut of time on my hands to spend uh, taking my dog through all kinds of uh, physical exercise every day. So I was looking for a way to kind of do that more um, effectively, and I came upon a website. Um, a website for an organization called the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention. And it was started by another Southerner, a veterinarian whose name is Ernie Ward. He's down in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. And basically, in addition to some of the information about exercise that I come to look for, Dr. Ward's website spells out some of the high-level kind of population-wide facts about something that I had no idea at the time was as – I had no idea it was nearly as – big of a problem as it is. And that, that problem is obesity among yes. household pets in, in, in the United States. Yep. Um, Dr. Ward's website highlights some of the, the high level facts and they're pretty stunning. What's the um, website? Uh, I think it's apop.org. Let's see if I get that right. Or, or the name of the veterinarian one more time. They can Google it. Oh, he's Ernie Ward. Ernie Ward. Okay. Yeah. So anyhow, he, you know, one of the things to, he, one of the points that Dr. Ward, he's petobesityprevention.org. And so one of the things that he does to highlight the significance of the problem is to just give folks a general sense of the, um, the frequency with which veterinarians encounter obesity among um, dogs and cats in the United States. And, and the, the most obvious and glaring fact is that more than half of the dogs and cats in the United States are overweight or obese. And type 2 diabetic. Yeah, there's a there's a, a a serious diabetes problem on cats in the United States. Um, in fact, about uh, seven years ago on this show, way back in the early days of this show, I actually had a veterinarian on named Dr. Travis Einertsen, and he was telling me about how he was treating his obese and diabetic cats with what he called the Catkins diet. And so what it yeah. ended up being was a low-carb, uh, high-protein, high-fat diet, uh, and it worked like a charm, just like it would on humans. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I explain in my book is that if you are persuaded by the case made by folks like Gary Taubes and um, the other proponents of ketogenic diets, if you're persuaded by that case in the world of human nutrition, then you'll easily be persuaded by it in the world of uh, dog and cat nutrition because the um, experimental evidence is every bit as good. All the kind of mechanistic physiological pieces align in the same kind of way that they align um, in the world of human humans um, and the evolutionary background of small animals. It, it, the case that carbohydrates only made their way into the, uh, the the diets of dogs and cats very recently, evolutionarily speaking, is as strong as you'll see in any you know ancestral health argument concerning human beings. You know, yeah. there's unlike um, if you want to be an ancestral health researcher in the United States, it's a challenge to um, you, you have to go pecking around to go find um, existing populations of folks who are still living a um, 
uh, hunter-gatherer lifestyle consistent with um, our evolutionary heritage. But it's not really hard at all to do that um, for dogs. And that's because, as I recount in my book, um, there are, while they're not uh, incredibly populous, there are populations of wolves uh, living in various locations in the United States right now. And they're very well-studied animals. And they are so genetically similar to dogs that they legitimately, I mean, it's in a lot of ways, it's not even fair to call them two distinct species. There are, um, you know, it's, it's a com one of the ways that I've seen biologists even define the concept of a species is to say that, um, members of, 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 uh, this population can breed successfully with other members of the population. You can't breed successfully across the species boundary, but that's not the case with dogs and wolves. There are at least a hundred thousand and by some estimates, as many as a million dog wolf hybrids living in the United States right now, even though it's affirmatively illegal to breed those animals in many of these, uh, many of the States. So they're really similar. And if you go and you talk to the biologists at the Yellowstone Wolf Project, which is kind of one of the key sources of data about the lifestyles of wolves uh, right now, um, one of the first things they'll tell you about their lifestyle is that they consume a diet composed of 99 point, you know, uh, redu- uh, uh, a repeating nine number um, out of uh, 100 calories are meat, uh, are, you know, are, are large ungulates. And so there is almost zero carbohydrate. It's a negligible amount that they've been consuming for um, the hundreds of millions of years that canine species have been on the map. Yeah, and yet here we have in today's society, and I see them every time I go to Sam's Club, those big, big, like 100,000-pound bags of dry dog food. When, when did the uh, the cat food, dog food industry come along? When did that become prevalent? Yeah, well, in the early part of the 20th century, this is the lore, at least. It's said to have begun um, with uh, this guy, Spratt, James Spratt, a, a um American who was a, a kind of entrepreneurial type who was in England in connection with some other kind of entrepreneurial project. And the, as, as, as legend has it, as, as reported in some somewhat credible um, sources today, um, Spratt's on the uh, dock outside at some kind of a port, and he sees a kind of group, a pack of um, stray dogs fighting with each other over some kind of food product and he gets to look closer at it and he sees that it's what's called hardtack which is this uh it was something that was used in the kind of uh naval campaigns and other transoceanic voyages of the day which was basically a really really simple biscuit flour and water and that's about it and uh it was was popular because it was inexpensive and it could keep for a really long time and um as you can imagine from its name, it was not just, you know, pleasantly crusty. It was very hard and serious uh, biscuit. And so he sees the dogs fighting over it. He has an idea. He says, maybe I can make a, um, uh, a product like this and market it as a successful food for dogs. And so the industry is kind of uh, grows out of that. And so right from the beginning of the kind of um, the, the standalone dog food industry carbs came into the equation. They were, they've, they've always been a part of it. And, and so the, the diet before uh, this kind of garbage came on for the dogs, uh, what was the diet like it, meat and protein basically? Well, so for wolves and for other wild canines, the diet is exclusively, I mean, you know, I can't emphasize enough. There's there, the exceptions are, very minor. And I only emphasize that for 
just to to dispel the occasionally heard notion that wolves actually will consume some amount of plant matter um, in addition to the um, the ungulates that make up the, the majority of their diet. That is something that all the folks who I've been in contact with at the um, Yellowstone Wolf Project have been very quick to uh, dispel. They'll even note that when a um, once a pack of wolves has picked over a carcass, what you generally have left, they eat the entire thing. You know, they'll get through the hide um, and many of the bones as well. What you'll have left at the end of this kind of feasting is the largest unbreakable bones, the, the ones that, you know, just come from too big an animal for them to break. And then the contents of the rumen, of the, you know, the plant matter that's contained within the complex digestive uh, organ that the uh, ungulates have to, to process um, the massive amounts of grass that they eat will also go uneaten. They'll eat the lining of the rumen, but they'll have, you'll find these huge wads of half fermented grass uh, amid the big broken bones. So mm-hmm. wild canines, no plant matter whatsoever. However, one of the few recently, over the past three or four years, um, uh, geneticists have done a, a, a lot of work trying to understand. It seems to me that they're, they're most interested in understanding when the dog-wolf uh, divergence occurred, when in their history dogs and wolves diverged from each other. And there's not to my knowledge, there's not a consensus opinion about it yet. I've seen anywhere from 10,000 years to nearly 100,000 years ago um, mentioned as being supported by the genetic evidence. Um, but one of the things that they've been able to identify are the kinds of genetic differences that have arisen between dogs and wolves. And so one of the things, um, as you can imagine, um, where, where one of the areas in which we see a, a, a lot of difference between one and the other is uh, the between the ear stuff. Um, dogs and wolves do not behave too similarly. Um, of particular note, if you um, are so inclined to adopt a wolf puppy and raise it in your um, Park Avenue penthouse, even if you give it lots of obedience training every day and all kinds of TLC, it will still grow up to be an unruly and, and you know very much wild animal. Because hmm. um, uh, it's in the genes. It's in the yeah. It's in the, they're you know things. They're brain-based differences that manifest as behavioral differences. Got it. But for our purposes, the other the other important physiological difference, and again, I, I emphasize they're they're incredibly similar animals. But one of the other main physiological differences is that dogs actually can digest starch more effectively than wolves can. They have amylase. They produce amylase to an extent that wolves don't do it. So it, whereas. Uh, you know, a wolf will not be able to, uh, to, to the best of my knowledge, you'll never encounter this in nature, but I'm not sure that it could even uh, sustain life um, uh, by being given a bulk of its calories from carbohydrate sources. A dog will stay alive. It can draw energy from carbohydrate sources. It can break them down and it can uh, assimilate uh, the constituent nutrients into um, other bodily tissues. Um, so at some point in the evolution of the domestic dog, they began eating um, some form of starch. Starch entered the diet enough to um, produce an adaptation that allowed them to draw caloric um, energy from it. And what most geneticists interpret that as meaning is that there was a kind of um, co-evolutionary process taking place where dogs and their long history with human beings um, they, they evolved alongside each other. And as we discovered agriculture and created agricultural products to fuel our own um, uh, carbohydrate-rich um, 
diets, uh, we began um, making available, intentionally or not, uh, carbohydrate products to dogs as well, and that they were selected, therefore, by their ability to, um, to, to make good use of them. So from that period where that kind of where that change occurs right up to when James Spratt has his aha moment and decides to start mass marketing his um, Spratt's Fibrine meat cakes, um, there's, you know, it's really nothing more than anecdotal evidence. But the best that you're ever going to hear is that they were basically fed like they were a member of the family. There was no such thing as a specialized dog food product. They were mm-hmm. just given scraps from the table. And so that was, a, you know, a reflection of whatever their uh, their family was eating. And again, back then, that was before the the vast marketing of all the crappy garbage that we now say is food, but was never even in human history uh, considered anything but just it it wasn't food. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, this is before um, uh, your Ansel Keys and and such things. So, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, the point, the take home point is that while you know, there's no question that uh, a dog like a human being can make um, productive use, productive, you know, put, put the air quotes around it, use of a uh, of a diet of a gram of dietary carbohydrate. Um, there uh, it, it's only very recently in evolutionary terms that they've begun to be able to do so. And right. so if you're at all persuaded by the um, don't mess with Mother Nature argument, um, <laughs> then you've got to be a little bit wary about the fact that carbohydrates have been a part of our dog's lives for such a short period of time. Do you find it challenging to get organ meats into your healthy ketogenic lifestyle? Don't you wish you could get all the benefits of consuming these traditional superfoods chock full of nutrients without having to cook or eat them? Well, let me introduce you to the brand new grass-fed organ complex supplement from Paleo Valley, makers of the deliciously juicy grass-fed beef sticks. They use gently freeze-dried ingredients, including all grass-fed, grass-finished beef liver, heart, brain, and kidney to give you a flavorless, power-packed punch of nutrition you won't be able to replicate beyond eating all of these organ meats in your diet. Each bottle contains a 30-day supply of easy-to-swallow pills with the fillers or flow agents added. They're gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, dairy-free, and non-GMO. Go to paleovalley.com slash LLVLC and use the coupon code LLVLC to get a generous 20% off your order. Try it today to get a 60-day, 100% money-back guarantee and see how you like the grass-fed organ complex for yourself. That's paleovalley.com slash LLVLC. Have you tried the Jigsaw Electrolyte Supreme yet? It replenishes minerals, B vitamins, and electrolytes that are lost daily through sweat, urination, occasional diarrhea, and exercise. A Live in La Vida Low Carb Show listener named Tricia writes, I listened to your podcast on the iPhone app and have enjoyed your sponsor, Jigsaw Health, where you talked about the electrolytes, lemon lime, for $10 off with coupon code LLVLC. My feet and legs cramp up often, even though LCA 
DHF two and a half years, and then keto half year after that for three years total eating well. I wondered if the electrolytes would help, so I used your coupon code. First night of drinking the mixture all day, no cramps, slept well, and every night since. Just reordered the three pack this time, saving more money and using your code once again. Thank you, it really tastes good and works great. I use twice the amount of water they suggest, or it's too sweet for me, so I put a scoop in 16 ounces or half a scoop in 8 ounces instead of one in eight. So join Trisha, get Jigsaw Electrolyte Supreme, head on over to lowcarbelectrolytes.com and definitely use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to save $10 off of your order. Again, it's called Jigsaw Electrolyte Supreme. And now here we have this huge pet food industry. I mean, literally walking down the aisles of any store that sells this stuff, PetSmart, you know, has a whole pallets and pallets and pallets worth of this stuff, um, you know, those companies have to have a huge, huge influence over basically what anyone related to dogs is teaching to dog owners and by extension like cat owners and pet owners in general so you know what is that influence how much money is the food industry number one because it's going to be eye-opening to see the amount of money that's involved and then what kind of influence do they have over say researchers looking at pets and and the impact of nutrition on their health yeah okay so um like you said, it's a massive industry. Um, in the United States alone, we're talking north of $20 billion a year Whoa. food products alone. Um, and in um, globally, I think you're talking north of $60 billion a year. So That's incredible. Really, really big. Um, the kind of, uh, it's a highly consolidated industry. Um, it's a pretty, it's a mature industry in that way where a lot of the, where a handful of the biggest players um, have bought up a lot of their competition and there's yeah. kind of, uh, the, the folks at the top are true, uh, corporate Titans. Um, are you they know, the, the Monsanto's of dog food, uh, Purina and <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, Purina is a, um, subsidiary of, uh, the Nest- Nestle corporation. Yes. And, and we're, we're talking about some, uh, company with 125,000 employees on the payroll, right. uh, Mars pet care is a subsidiary, um, of uh, and, and Mars Corporation, Mars Company. I'm not sure exactly uh, what the corporate entity is, right. but I know they're the third largest privately held company in the United States. So they're every bit as big as your Monsantos or your big drug companies or big tobacco. You know, wow. whatever, whatever your your preferred villain is, they're they're <laughs> every bit as large, and their profiteering motive is every bit as significant as it is for all those other folks. It's baked into their DNA. It is their reason for existing, and so. Like you said, um, you would one would think um, that you would at least be interested in. Let me let me try it. Let me try it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, there are seventy or eighty million pet owners in the United States, and even a very concerted marketing campaign, even the best kind of marketing campaign you could put together, would um, struggle to reach the majority of them. However, there are only about 110,000 veterinarians in the United States, and most dog owners and cat owners have, rightfully so, a very um, trusting and positive relationship with their veterinarian. And so um, you can imagine the light bulb going off inside um, a a business executive's head once upon a time, and that, that time period was basically the late 90s, so this process was uh, um, pioneered 
by a company called Hills. They're one of the major um, uh, producers. And they basically decided we're going to try to um, make a concerted effort to market through doctor, uh, through veterinarians to reach dog owners that way. And so they, they created a line of prescription only um, pet foods. And, and Is that the science diet dog food and things like that? That's right. They're the people behind, they're the company behind that product. And it's, you know, it's a relatively interesting story where it came from. They, uh, at the time they were a, a subsidiary of Colgate Palmolive and Colgate had done, had a lot of success doing the exact same thing with toothpaste as marketed through dentists. The relationship is pretty analogous. You, right. try, you know, I don't, I don't know that much about my teeth, but I know my dentist knows a lot. And so I, I have a position, of, he has a position of trust in my life. So he did basically the same kind of thing. And so, um, and they grew explosively. And um, since they did so, they've now, it's basically an industry-wide practice where you will, um, and it manifests in any number of different ways, but some of the things that I've been exposed to um, include, um, there are, if you're a um, veterinarian or a veterinary technician, so these are the folks that work in veterinary offices that often have um, the most face time with, with, um, with patients. They're kind of equivalent to like a, a nurse. They, you know, they spend a lot of time with patients. Yep. They do a lot of the work. They don't perform surgery, but they do a lot of the work. Those kind of folks have to take continuing education courses in just about um, every state in the United States in order to keep current, you know, yep. in order to satisfy the regulators that they're, they're not sufficiently knowledgeable. One of the um, major sponsors of, of, of such continuing education courses in the nutrition domain is Hills Pet Care. Wow. And they, yeah, I've, I've been to one of the courses and, um, you know, you get, uh, I, you, I recount the experience in my book. And so you can kind of judge for yourself there the, the quality of the information that's being conveyed. But you, you mean, it's hard to deny that there's a significant conflict of interest, even for the most um, buttoned up and serious professional. Yeah. To, not present information that's going to be uh, uh, cast its own products in a bad light. Well, and we see this in the Dietetics Association, the same thing. Coca-Cola has such a strong influence among dietitians in promoting sugar is not as bad as you think it is. And so you get that kind of thing. And then I've, I've been to a lot of like obesity conference for humans. And it's the same thing. The pharmaceutical companies have the next great wonder drug. And so they sponsor a breakfast and hand out all this information and give these to your patients for free. So this is an industry-wide across many industries practice that we're now seeing in the pet food industry. Yeah, it's, it's tough to be a consumer. I mean, that, that's the you, bottom line. You can line. be savvy, though, as a consumer, which is why I do this show. I want to educate people about becoming more savvy, especially when it's man's best friend involved. Yeah, you know, I mean, and that's what I aim to do with my book. You know, basically, I kind of came upon these startling facts about the prevalence of obesity in the United States among pets and didn't make sense to me. How, how could it be that people who love their animals as much as I love mine and want nothing but the best for them could be allowing this kind of condition um, in, in such epidemic levels when it's a condition that's been shown to be uh, absolutely horrible for the pet's health. You know, a fact that I like to quote all the time that I mention in my book a lot is that on, on a, on a, in a real terms percentage basis, being just moderately overweight is worse for a dog than an entire lifetime of smoking is for a human being. Okay, it like cuts their life down very significantly, and this has been, you know, this has been experimentally verified on numerous occasions. There are associational links to all number of cancer, to osteoarthritis, of course, and to all other kinds of, you know, chronic disease. You know, you've seen, I've, I've, I've listened to enough of your podcast to know that you're very familiar with the kind of 
um, the interrelationship and the overlap between obesity and lots of other uh, chronic diseases. Yeah. So it astounded me how how could people you know it's like un- unlike many of us have challenges view the process of managing our own weight as challenging. Um, you know, like I said, it's tough to be a consumer and you got companies trying to sell you as much as, the, as they can of uh, their food products. And um, it's hard to, to kind of deal with, to have to, when there's a McDonald's on every corner, it's not always the easiest thing in the world. However, you'd think on some level that that feeding your dog or your cat the right amount of food and managing its body condition would be a simpler exercise, right? There's less temptation to overcome. At, at least it's a different kind of temptation than is the uh, sensory you know, seduction of a baking chocolate chip cookie or something like that. You're not there's not a McDoggles? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> the decision-making and the sensory stimulation are removed. You right. know what I mean? That's my, dog, true. my dog drools. Don't get me wrong. When he sees us <laughs> in the kitchen, he drools. But I'm the decision-maker, not him. Right. And you just think that, that, that dog owners and cat owners, wouldn't that they'd be able to, you know, maybe some people would screw it up a little bit. But the idea that you'd have the majority, okay? So, like, you're listening to this right now. We're talking about your dog. Like, any person that's, statistically speaking, it's more fat dogs in the United States than not fat dogs. Right. How could that be? And so, that kind of set, that just seemed like a, like an under, it just didn't make sense to me. And so, I just kind of, you know, I was motivated to learn to help my own dog. But the more I got into it and the more I realized kind of the, the overlap between the um, scientific community, the nutritional science community, yeah. and the um, dog food industry, and kind of the way that uh, the, the true existing state of our scientific knowledge about nutritional matters in the, um, in the world of small animals, the, the more interesting it got. And so, yeah, that's, that's basically the same reason I wrote the book. You know, it's like right. I, I felt like it's information um, that, that folks deserve to have, that so, they don't, they're not exposed to. So, Dan, what do we know from the scientific literature uh, regarding how your dog should be fed? And ostensibly, really, any of your pets, uh, uh, domesticated pets, should be fed. And I'm assuming there's probably this large gap in the information that we need to do more research, but there's no willingness for people to put their money where their mouth is to look at that. Oh, you've hit the nail uh, right on the head. That's an excellent point. Um, you know, in the, the world of small animal research is... Um, is it, it doesn't even it's not even fair just to say it's a small fraction of what the um, but the, the kind of budget that's devoted to human nutrition issues uh, and science surrounding those issues uh, is it's just it's it's uh, orders of magnitude difference. OK, there's a, just like a, a, a perennial lack of funding for um, much in the way of canine nutritional science. So one of the few um, sources of funding um, is corporate our corporate interests, and so um, there are at least three major dog food manufacturers that have their own research institutions, yeah. and they, they control. You know, they they employ the scientists that work there. They exercise a degree of control over what kind of work is funded and what isn't, and um, it, one can only infer they ex- exercise a degree of control over what they decide to publish and what they decide to keep as proprietary. Um, research information. So when you have an industry that is as vested as the dog food industry is in maintaining the um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you look, the, 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 if, if the fact that carbohydrates don't do good things for small animals is a damaging one for their existing business models. I right. mean, these, 
the dry dog food products that are um, dry dog food products make up basically 80% of the market. Okay. And, and you can imagine the reasons why I don't know if I, you feed a product like that at home, but anyone who's listening who does, they're incredibly easy. They're the simplest thing in the world. They're inexpensive. They keep well. They're yeah. a really, really sharp product on a lot of levels. The problem is that they requ- basically require um, some measure of starch to be produced. Um, you know, they, they, they're produced in a not so basically the same kind of way that we produce muffins or biscuits or something like that. There's yep. a dough created with a starch base and it's um, during heating, the starch is broken down and it binds the other ingredients together. And highly and, digestible at that point. Yeah, exactly. Um, What's funny is the trend with the grain-free cat food and dog food that's come out in the past few years. I look at that and I look at the ingredients and they've just replaced the grains with rice flour and and corn flour and other kinds of starchy kind of foods. It's not changing the carbohydrate content one one iota. Oh, yeah, you bet. That's a that's a pet. (laughs) Yeah, 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 can't just (laughs) can't keep going with these puns too much. But yeah, that's that is a pet. It's just such a. it's such a flagrant case of um, deception. You know, it's not. Of course, it doesn't amount to outright fraud. Of course not. But it's so. You know, I reckon that I'm not the only consumer who would see a um, bag of food that's labeled grain free with an image of an ear of corn with a red X across it and um, words like holistic and nutritious and wholesome all on there i you know i'm sure i'm not the only one who interprets that as oh well this must be relatively low carbohydrate and the 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 reality is exactly as you said that that's almost never the case right they really just swapping out one starchy ingredient for another and it without going too deep into the weeds here the problem is even worse than that the labeling um requirements the kind of regulatory framework that governs the labeling of pet food products in the United States today are, are they're particularly um, deficient when it comes to uh, educating consumers about it's carbohydrate. Content. Very confusing reading a pet food label. I, I looked at the back of my cat food one one time. It's like crude protein and and different. I mean, just broke it down. I'm going. I, I want like a U.S. Uh, you know a human food uh label because i don't understand any of this <laughs> how many carbs are in it how, how much of it is broken down as this and how much protein and you can't really see that on a dog or cat food label no you need to um it's the, the information there is sufficient to um to to in theory to teach a consumer about exactly what's in the product but you better have like a copy of my book and a calculator <laughs> with you and because there a is phd in uh, molecular all- chemistry yeah yeah right they don't have a requirement. There's not. I mean, these basically the rules are all um, promulgated by a private kind of industry group that uh, puts out a new annualized set of model rules every year, and then individual state legislatures adopt them. But basically, um, one of the kind of core deficiencies is uh, to date they've never included a requirement about carbohydrate content. You don't have to say how much carbs are in my product. You can, I can back as a consumer, again, if I'm particularly knowledgeable, if I've looked into how to figure this out, yeah. I can back into that information. Extrapolate but it's not, from the ingredients. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's, 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 you know, it's a mess on a lot of levels. Um, and so, like I said, there's a, you know, there's a vested interest in, um, you know, and, and, and I'm, I try to be careful in the book. You, know, you can very easily uh, slip into um, righteous indignation 
and kind of uh, demonization when you're telling stories like this. And I really try not it's to do that. It's hard not to, though, in a way. I mean, we do the same thing with Ansel Keys and the whole nutritional mess with us humans. So it's kind of hard not to. Is, is there like a singular Ansel Keys would, uh, in, in the pet food? Would, would it be the guy that came up with the, with the dry food? Yeah, no, not to my knowledge. I mean, see, that that's kind of the version of the story that makes the most sense to me is yeah. that you had an industry that developed before the science started becoming particularly clear. Gotcha. And it, big tobacco, it, even though, of course, it has there are reasons why the big tobacco industry is uniquely um uh, villainous and immoral. And it's not fair to say that the dog food industry is just like big tobacco. Sure. It's obviously not. However, there is something similar too, which is that it, you know, nobody, the big, big tobacco didn't set out to make a, a deadly product and build up a big industry to kill people. You know, they started an industry, it became really popular. Then the science started coming out and they started figuring it out. And by that point they were so invested in their own products that they're kind of they're in something of a catch-22 with their moral obligations on one hand and their uh, shareholder obligations on the other. And I think you've got something, to my eyes, you have something really similar going on right now in the world of uh, big food and big pet food. Well, and um, I think but, what they, they did was they convinced themselves of their own lies by yeah. add, you know fortifying these dog foods with all the essential micronutrients and vitamins. And see, they're getting great nutrition, so that kind of like appeased their own guilt, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a fair thing to say. Um, you know, the uh, like I said, the um, the influence in research science is profound. Um, that being said, there are um, published peer reviewed experiments that are very clear on um, the respective body condition impacts of different macronutrients on small animals. Sure. Uh, it's better, frankly, in some ways than the um, human subject science in that same domain because it's it's a bit quite a bit easier to um manage the the diets of canine subjects than it is to uh manage you know people with our uh you know free will what have you sure uh, so but yeah you you know you have a whole series a whole line of of case of experiments basically showing that when we swap out a calorie of ca carbohydrate for a similar quantity of protein for the same quantity of protein isocaloric diets right. these massive differences in resulting body condition in one particularly um uh, profound study that I discuss at length in the book, you basically had 600% more fat in animals that were um, fed a equivalent number of calories of carbohydrate as compared to protein. These, wow. these animals wound it up with, you know, something like 38% body fat as compared to something like 8%, just like a, a phenomenally yeah. uh, big Significant, difference. yes. And, um, it's an interesting story because, I mean, this is th that to me is the most kind of persuasive piece of one of the most persuasive pieces of evidence on that. Once you kind of uh, um, understand the, the physiological mechanisms that drive the, um, you know, carbohydrate insulin model of obesity, then you got to look to see at, at the look at the experimental evidence and see whether that kind of uh, theory lines up with that evidence. And see, you, you look at these canine specific cases and you see that they're they're good examples. And this is perhaps the best example. I reached out to the lead author on the study. You know, like I had done countless times in connection with uh, my book. Obviously, I'm going to talk to the, the folks who have published the science that's relevant to the book. And uh, this woman who she's uh, she's 
accessible on social media. She's got a uh, Twitter account. Um, she's got her email address, as as all responsible researchers do. You know, all, all leading journals generally require that their uh, researchers print contact information in their right. articles. There was no trouble at all for me to find her. But I reached out and I couldn't get her to get back to me. And, um, you know, I, I kind of... Uh, I uh, felt rejected at first. I wasn't sure. Maybe she doesn't think I'm doing. I'm taking uh, my project seriously enough. Show up at her front door. She'll <laughs> well, her lab. Go ahead. I got somebody to respond to me, but it wasn't her. Uh, it was a PR agent from Mars Pet Care. Whoa. Turns out that the very woman who had produced is the lead researcher on a study that basically uh, I'm paraphrasing, but basically says low carbohydrate diets work for dogs. Yeah. Um, yeah, was not allowed to talk to me. Um, I had described the nature of my project. I, I explained kind of my perspectives and what I perceived to be an even handed and fair way to this uh, PR agent. And uh, that was the end of that uh, conversation came to an abrupt halt. Um, That's wild. Yeah, I never seen that. I've never heard of that kind of thing emerging in the uh, human nutrition world. That seems so particularly egregious. In the human nutrition world, I bet it happens more than we know. I, you, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> And we just don't know Here's, about it. <laughs> let me give you one more example of of just how egregious this can get. Um, I'm sitting here, you know, I don't I don't appear on a ton of podcasts, and I'm I'm more comfortable um, communicating in writing than I am talking to somebody. I get nervous. You're talking not, well today, buddy. You're talking well. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, but but you know what I mean. I'm, I'm nervous about my command of facts. Whereas if I'm writing something, I can be a hundred percent sure. You can I, Google I, it. <laughs> Uh, sure. So what I've got, I'm sitting at my dining room table here and I've got all my various research materials spread out in front of me. And so one of the things I've got right here is a book, huge, fat, seven, eight pound book, uh, small animal clinical nutrition, fourth edition. It's a big textbook that basically is used at, in the better veterinary institutions to teach uh, small animal nutrition. So there's there are plenty of I, and I talk about this in the book a good bit too. There are plenty of institutions that don't even use a textbook when they teach their two credit nutrition course to rising veterinarians. They just use like a short little pamphlet, but the better ones will use a big major textbook and there's really only a couple of them. And this is one of them. And, uh, it's a plenty good book. Um, there's, it covers every aspect of physiology. Um, it, embraces the calories in calories out model wholeheartedly the experimental evidence that i've just discussed with you is not cited uh, in the book there's no um presentation of the carbohydrate insulin model as a you know even as an alternative hypothesis it's just uh calories in calories out and that's it and if you flip this book over and you look at the back of it there's this gold embossed gold embossed logo right on the back compliments of hills <laughs> they literally wrote the book on the subject that's being used in in the most um, kind of rigorous uh, veterinary nutrition curricula. It, it's completely egregious. Oh, my goodness. That is – in a way, that doesn't surprise me, Dan, because we see it enough in human. But, man, oh, man, is nothing sacred? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's shameless, frankly. Mm. Um, so, oh. hopefully, you know, in my, in my inexpert eye, the um, – the sophistication of consumers in the dog food market kind of lags behind the issue understanding of issues lags behind um, 
the analogous understanding in the world of, you know, when we think about how to feed ourselves, there's that we often think along the same kinds of subjects and things that become trends in one market become trends in another, but there is a lag. And so it's my hope that um, the kind of uptick in, um, in consumer sophistication about nutritional issues will translate over from the, um, you know, with, with good work that folks like you do will, uh, will, will find its way. Well, you're certainly doing your part to kind of shine the light on the pet uh, industry. So thank you so much for all the great work that you are doing. His name is Daniel Shuloff. The name of his book we've been talking about here today, Dogs, Dog Food, and Dogma, The Silent Epidemic Killing America's Dogs, and the New Science That Could Save Your Best Friend's Life. We'll have a link to it in the show notes section at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And be sure to check out Dan's websites, varsitypetsonline.com, as well as theoptimaldog.com. And speaking of getting a hold of you, you're also on Twitter at Daniel Shuloff. That's D-A-N-I-E-L-S-C-H-U-L-O-F. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining us here today on the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show. You bet, Jimmy. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Coming up next time on the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show... We'll have an expert in hyperbaric oxygen therapy. His name, Dr. Scott Scher. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. 